Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. We thought we'd start the new year with some resolutions. And as we're a wee bit late, hopefully we can provide fresh inspiration for anyone who's already broken theirs. And what better way to start than with Judith O'Reilly, who's going to tell us all about her year of doing good. Following that, we have some motivating words for any smokers out there trying to quit, from no other than the worldwide director of Alan Carr's Easyway International Limited. Next, we have a chat with Marlon Khan, our diet guinea pigs here at Penguin Towers, who fill us in on their success with the alternate day diet. And lastly, we have an inspiring extract from Susan Cain's heartfelt book, Quiet. So without further ado, I give you Judith O'Reilly. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. My name is Victoria Lyons and I work for Penguin Digital and I'm joined with Judith O'Reilly, who's the author of A Year of Doing Good. Hi, Judith. Hi, Victoria. Uh, Great for you to come in today. Um, Can you just tell us a bit about your book and why you started to do these good deeds? Well, every new year I um, make a resolution and it's something like to get fit or to lose weight and I never keep them. So this year I decided I would um, have a different kind of resolution. So I decided I wanted to be a better person and I would do a good deed a day for a year. And astonishingly, I kept that one. Wow, gosh. So what did you find were the most effective good deeds that you did? Well, I did uh, small good deeds and big ones. So the small ones would be something like um, clearing out a dead mouse from a mouse trap for a, for a vegetarian friend or mopping out a neighbour's loo that had been leaking. Um, buying a, a stranger sterodent and um, looking for a lost dog, although I have to say I didn't find it. Um, and then there were bigger good deeds because I, I, it wasn't. I didn't want it to be a gimmick. I wanted to actually change the world or my world anyway for mm. the better. So the bigger de- good deeds were things like um, I mentored a uh, young man who dropped out of school and um, left, uh, quit college. And I uh, did creative writing every week with a disabled teenager who loved to write. Mm. And I gave a friend some respite. Um, She's got an adopted um, child who's very needy. So I gave her a couple of hours off every week by taking that child um, for lunch and play. Um, And I did something called, set up something called the Jam Jar Army, which was a charity fundraising um, thing, which I'm delighted to say we're we're on more than £26,000 from that so far. Wow, that's amazing. And so these are quite big deeds that you've done. But does it matter that some of the good deeds are quite small or are they overshadowed by the big ones? I would say, forget David Cameron's big society think small and do good. I don't think there's anything wrong with thinking small. I think a kind word can make a big difference to someone when they're feeling low. And I'm I'm willing to bet that people listening to this can think of someone in their circle, in their friends or family or neighbours, who are going through something like bereavement or sickness or they're having a tough time at work. And I would say, pick up the phone and call them and listen to what they have to say. And that is a good deed. Start 2013 off with a good deed. Yeah. And um, how do you think doing these good deeds has changed you as a person or the people around you? Well, I set off wanting to be a better person. 
And after a year, after 365 good deeds, I came to the conclusion, actually, I wasn't a better person. I was someone who had done 365 good deeds. But having said that, I think I had made a difference um, to the people who I had been involved with, and I had helped a bit. And I don't think you have to set out to to volunteer every week in a charity shop. I think people can get put off by that because we're all so busy these days. We've got kids, we've got work. Just start out small. I mean, it's great if you can volunteer like that. And I did come across many, many people who were giving the most amazing amount of, of time, week in and week out. Astonishing. And, and people's motives are inspiring. It's it's almost like a marathon. You have to keep going. It is three hundred and sixty five good deeds. Yeah, you just had you just had to because I knew that if I didn't do it one day, that would be it. It would just all unravel, and I'd just give up. And it is hard. I mean, if, you know, if you get to the evening, and you haven't done a good deed, it is hard when you'd rather be sitting there watching TV with a glass of wine to make yourself get up and go do something for someone else. But what I did find was that if I did that, I did feel energised. I did feel better about myself. Um, And when I did some research into it, I I had asked people that I was coming across, you know, these volunteers, um, what they got out of it. And they were telling me that they felt better about themselves, that they really enjoyed it. They weren't saying that they got nothing out of it, that it was a tremendous sort of sacrifice on their part. But as they were saying it, I wasn't really believing them because you're thinking, well, you're a good person. You're just saying that. You're being modest. You're not getting anything out of it, really. Mm. But you do get something out of it. There's something called the helper's high, so that you feel good about yourself because you're getting some chemical rush in your body that's a reward. So you are being rewarded biologically for doing good. So you would say to all our listeners who are perhaps inspired by your by your book and by what you did, that if they are falling behind and they can't sort of get the momentum to keep going, just to remember that feeling. No, I think that feeling has to be a a side effect. That's, you know, like a a side order of vegetables on the, you know, when you've ordered your meal, you have to do something good. And then, you know, the side effect is you feel good. I don't think you could set out to feel good by doing a good deed. So how would you encourage these other people to do good deeds? It's really easy. It's, it, I am not a good person. I'm an all right person who wanted to be a bit better. So you don't have to get overwhelmed with the idea of virtue or morality or anything. I think you look at your ordinary life and you maybe, you know, give someone a kind word and make the most of your skills and talents maybe that's a good one I don't think necessarily a huge time commitment is for everyone but you know if you know you're good at something well share that talent and skill around yeah and did you feel sort of how grateful people were for just a little thing that you would do for them was everyone happy with your good deeds I don't know I get quite uncomfortable about the term sort of you know grateful or gratitude no because I'm not some sort of vicar's wife from the 19th century wandering around with a you know basket of provisions Mm. but what I will say is I was really surprised astonished by the thanks that you do get back I was being thanked I had cards I had flowers I had chocolates all the time and and in and in, in unexpected ways I I went somebody broke down outside my back door 
Um, they were there for a long time. I tried to bring them in. They didn't want to come in, but I brought them out tea and biscuits. And um, eventually, you know, the RAC came and whatnot, and they went away. And the next day, they came and knocked on my door. They were holidaymakers. The next day, they came and knocked on my door and gave me a box of chocolates. Well, they, they didn't have to do that. No. Um, I wasn't expecting them to do that, but how lovely. But I think, I think it is inspiring what people will do for each other. I would say I went into the year with a, a certain amount of patchy faith, but a certain amount of faith. But I, at the end of the year, I probably had less faith in God and more faith in my fellow man. Mm. And do you find that you're doing more good deeds than you did before you did this year's worth of... Yeah, things? it becomes a bit obsessive, a bit compulsive. So... Mm. Um, Yes, <laughs> but what I'm not doing is I'm not doing every, I'm not doing every day as a, as a sort of you know religion of my own. But yeah, I think you get an eye for it, look for an opportunity to do a good deed, and um, you know it's a good thing to do. It's not it's not a burden to make someone else feel good. You yeah. get something out of it too. So did any good deeds go wrong? God, that's a terrible question. Um, well, I was. Because I was doing this jam jar army and I was doing it for the hospice, I, I went in and a lady had come up with uh, the idea of sewing charity elephants um, to raise money. I think she raised about £2,000 for the hospice, which was great. So they gave me a charity elephant to sew. And apparently you um, you had to go along to some master class in elephant sewing. And I thought, um, I don't need a master class to sew an elephant. No problem. So I went home anyway. I, anyway, I sewed this elephant and I stuffed it and I you know, hung a bell around its neck and I thought it looked beautiful. And then my son pointed out, Mummy, you've sewed it inside out. Oh, no. <laughs> and um, you've mentioned this jam jar army. Is there any way for people to get involved? Yes. What you have to do with the jam jar army is basically um, you eat the jam... And then you uh, you wash the jar. Very important to wash the jar. Things can get sticky otherwise. Mm. And then you fill a jar with change. It's a recession. Nobody's got any money. So what you do is um, you get those coins, which are down the sofa and in your handbag and loose in your pockets, weighing you down. And you put that loose change into the jar. It's coppers, not policemen, because they won't fit. <laughs> just coppers, just money that you wouldn't otherwise miss. And everyone can do that. It's an old-fashioned poor box. You have it on your kitchen, you have it by the phone, you fill it, bring it into a charity. There you go, Bob's your uncle, one good deed. Wow, well that's nice and easy, so I guess I'll be doing that next year. Hopefully everyone will be doing it. Yeah, hopefully everyone, all our listeners. (laughs) And final question, uh, do you have any New Year's resolutions for 2013? Yes, I thought this year I would get younger and grow taller (laughs) because I figured it would be easier. (laughs) Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Judith, for coming in. Um, Your book, A Year of Doing Good, is out now. And uh, we just want to encourage all readers to go out there and buy it and uh, try and make 2013 your year of doing good. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I'm not sure my New Year's resolution to run a few extra miles each week is quite as dedicated. Now, for the aspiring ex-smokers amongst us, some words from the Alan Carr Clinic. I consider myself just about the luckiest man on the planet. I had the amazing good fortune to stumble across Alan Carr's easy way to stop smoking method, 
back in the late 1990s. I should admit, the only thing I ever disagreed with Alan Carr about was his claim to have been the worst smoker on the planet. As an 80 to 100 a day smoker, more at weekends, I considered myself king of the smokers. Today I've been asked to talk about why Alan Carr's easy way to stop smoking provides the opportunity for a New Year's resolution for a lifetime. My first reaction to that title is that back in my days as a smoker, it would have frightened the life out of me. A lifetime without smoking, although every smoker's dream, is actually a goal that fills most smokers with utter dread. Our repeated failed attempts to quit smoking over the years, that ended before they even started, or even worse, fell by the wayside after hours, days, or even months of torture and hell, have us convinced that any attempt to stop smoking is bound to involve pain and suffering, and end in ultimate humiliation when we finally cave in and go back to smoking. If you're a smoker or a friend of a smoker, I have great news for you. It really doesn't have to be like that. I'll explain more about that later. Do you have plans to stop smoking as a New Year's resolution? Good on you. If you follow Alan Carr's simple steps, follow his simple instructions, then you're all set for freedom. Try not to expect a repeat of whatever you've experienced when you've tried to stop smoking in the past. As I've mentioned, most of our previous attempts to stop smoking just reinforce the belief that it's difficult, painful or even impossible to get free. Alan Carr addresses all other methods of stopping smoking collectively as the willpower method. They all tend to focus on telling smokers what they already know. You don't need anyone to tell you about the cost, the slavery, the health fears, the stigma of being a smoker. If those factors were going to help people to stop smoking, there wouldn't be a smoker left on the planet. We all know that stuff already. I was an expert at stopping smoking on the willpower method. I suppose I should say I was an expert at not stopping smoking on the willpower method. Most of my attempts to stop smoking on New Year's Day ended before Big Ben had chimed its 12th bong. No matter how determined I seemed a few hours earlier, I always ended up thinking, oh well it doesn't really count until the morning, I'll carry on smoking until I get to bed. The longest I managed to avoid smoking after waking up on New Year's Day was a few measly hours, and was only because it took that long to find a shop that was open on New Year's Day. I used to feel so useless and miserable. What a horrible start to the new year. In the end, I'd given up even trying to give up as a New Year's resolution. Why spoil the festive period by creating a feeling of doom and gloom? It's essential that you avoid that feeling. Make sure you enjoy the festive season and don't even give, give stopping smoking a second thought. All you need to do is decide when to start reading the book, why not start today, carry on smoking, yes I did say carry on smoking, and follow the instructions. You don't need to stop smoking until you're absolutely ready, and I can assure you by the end of the book you'll be chomping at the bit to go through the ritual of smoking a final cigarette. Not with a feeling of doom and gloom, not suffering from feelings of terrible deprivation, but instead finding it not only easy to stop smoking, but thoroughly enjoyable and able to enjoy social occasions more, to handle stress better and find it easy to relax and most importantly, easy to stay stopped. Once you understand how the smoking trap works and once you realise that the really nasty, horrible symptoms you had in the past when you tried to stop smoking are not caused by nicotine withdrawal, which is actually just a mild, empty and secure feeling, 
but caused by the immense mental and physical reaction to that initial feeling. You have the key to freedom. You have felt real physical feelings in the past. The fact is, their cause is mainly psychological and not caused by nicotine withdrawal. That's great news for you. It means all you have to do is get your head right. And that's what Alan Carr's Easy Way to Stop Smoking method does. If you have doubts about what I'm saying, about the cause of the horrible physical feelings you had in the past when you tried to stop smoking, and you don't quite accept that the real pain and suffering was not caused by nicotine withdrawal, but by your brain's reaction to nicotine withdrawal, think of this example for a moment. Imagine a young child, a toddler, playing with an amazing toy they've been given on Christmas morning. Imagine the child's parent calling him for lunch and the child's reluctance to leave his toy and go and endure lunch with the rest of the family. Now imagine the child's parent, eventually fed up of waiting and calling, taking the toy away. What happens to the child next is a huge physical reaction. Red face, bulging eyes, tears streaming down his face a terrible piercing scream noise coming out of the child's mouth. These are real physical symptoms, not caused by any chemical physical withdrawal from the toy, but caused by a mental process. I want the toy. I can't have it. This is exactly the same process as a smoker goes through when they attempt to stop smoking using the willpower method. It is caused by the smoker wanting a cigarette, not being allowed to have one. That terrible feeling. Do you see how that physical response is caused by the smoker feeling deprived? The longer the smoker feels deprived, the more powerful that feeling becomes. The reason a smoker feels deprived is because they believe they're getting some kind of pleasure, benefit, bonus or support from cigarettes. Issue by issue, Alan Carr's easy way to stop smoking reverses that brainwashing. Therefore, the desire to smoke is removed and there is no feeling of deprivation. That probably sounds too good to be true, but what have you got to lose? The book costs less than a couple of packets of cigarettes. It takes only a few hours, or days if you prefer, to read. You can read at your own pace and carry on smoking while you do so. Like the smokers who attend Alan Carr's Easy Way to Stop Smoking clinics throughout the UK, and in more than 45 countries throughout the world, you carry on smoking until you feel ready to stop. We celebrate the 30th anniversary of Alan Carr's discovery of Easy Way in 2013, and we remain so confident in the method that we still provide a money-back guarantee to those smokers who attend their clinics. If they don't stop smoking, their fee is refunded in full. The truth is, It's easy to stop smoking when you know how, and it takes just a handful of hours to achieve the correct frame of mind, effectively being trained to stop smoking while you carry on smoking. Because there is no feeling that you are missing out when you stop smoking with Alan Carr's Easy Way, you can be sure that this New Year's resolution is not only one that will stand up and last the whole year, but also something to enjoy and celebrate for the rest of your life. It's natural to be nervous, So if you need a little reassurance, please check out the thousands and thousands of testimonials on alancar.com or our Alan Carr Facebook page. What better way can there be of beating the January blues than finally getting free from cigarettes? 
I know money is probably the last thing on your mind, one of your reasons for wanting to stop smoking. But as a fantastic bonus, by this time next year, you'll have tucked away enough money, £2,000 for a pack-a-day smoker, for whatever you really want for Christmas. Merry Christmas and happy smoke for a year from everybody at Alan Carr's Easy Way to Stop Smoking. I'll certainly think twice before having a sneaky cigarette. Now we have a chat with Merlin Khan, our diet road testers, on their experience of the alternate day diet. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. My name's Danny and I've got Merle and Khan here talking to us about Dr Johnson's alternate day diet. They've both done it for two weeks and they've been blogging about their exploits, so they're here to tell us a little bit more about it. First off, guys, could you just introduce the concept of the diet to us? I'll leave this with Mel. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Khan. Um, the concept is really quite simple. Um, it's one day on and one day off, and that means that on the first day, uh, you have to reduce the amount of calories your sort of regular intake by 20%. Yeah, it's right? 20% of your average calorie intake at rest. So for a woman, that would be around 500 calories. And um, so that can prove quite difficult. And then the next day is when you can eat exactly what you want. So on this day off, can you actually eat more than you would normally? Or is the idea that you kind of stick to your normal? Well, I don't know how calm feels, but I definitely felt like I was eating a lot more than I would have done normally. <laughs> but I think it was just psychologically, you feel like you're eating a lot more than you would but you probably won't. And I think as the diet goes on, the idea is that you actually require less and mm. you're kind of you, eating doesn't become the habit that it is normally. So you actually want to eat less and you want to eat more healthily. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you definitely, your appetite goes, doesn't it? Yeah, but it does feel at the beginning that you're kind of gorging because you've deprived yourself for a whole day. day yeah, and I exactly. think as well, unlike other diets, because it does say you can eat whatever you want and you can drink. But you, you take that can, as literally as... Yeah, you do. So you kind of wake up and the first thing I was kind of thinking about is, right, I've got to get a, a, like a, a sickly sweet coffee and when you have your dinner, you just want to kind of chuck loads of carbs in. Mm. So I guess, I guess it's quite nice because you probably feel you've done your penance the day before. You can kind of eat eat as much as you like guilt-free. Definitely. But it was amazing how quickly you actually lose your appetite. So you don't, you're, you're, you get fuller quickly. So what was it like going down to about 500 calories? I'm not going to lie, the first day was definitely really tough, wasn't it, Con? I think it is. You kind of want to ease yourself into it but it's a bit like jumping off a cliff because you just go from a normal diet especially the run up to Christmas when you're mm. having a few evenings out and things are getting a bit drunken let's say <laughs> to then just go into 500 calories a day is quite tough yeah I don't think I've ever been so hungry as I was on that first day actually yeah the first couple of days were quite tough and it, especially I found myself staring at people who were eating like sandwiches or crisps or I look really strange walking down the street past like Press and Manger, just staring through the window thinking oh god and you have that's to my entirely my entire daily allowance in a sandwich you have to be so strict with your calories as well so when people are snacking or it's yeah. someone's birthday and some cakes pop up in the office you're the one that's kind of sat in a corner by yourself not being able to partake in the eating that everyone else is. But I actually found a good solution for that. Uh, there was a birthday quite early on into the diet in the office and I found that if I sliced the cake and handed it out, it was actually psychologically like I was eating it, so it was okay. I didn't feel so bad. <laughs> <laughs> that <laughs> sounds pathetic. It's true though. It's true. That's how you have to kind of look at it. You're like, oh, I've just eaten four pieces. Not. But yeah, it was fine. And you can smell it and it's okay. Mm. 
I guess a good bit of advice then would be don't start at Christmas. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Don't start in the run-up It's a really, really bad idea. It'll make you really miserable. Apart from the pride of succeeding, it will make you really miserable. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. January is definitely the time to start. Yeah. They've got a lot of interesting recipes in this book. Did you try any of them? Yes, definitely. Well, we tried uh, We tried to do as many as we could. Um, obviously, with work and time constraints, it's quite difficult. But we found that, at, well, I found, I know that you probably did as well, Khan, that preparing on the weekends and then kind of you can you can roll it over. So a lot of them are soup recipes and very simple, um, really easy to follow, and you can roll that over. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, definitely my favourite uh, recipe... Uh, was the mixed seafood and tomato broth. And if you've got a copy of the book, it's on page 190. Um, that was definitely lovely, and I really enjoyed rolling that over. I um, went for the Vietnamese soup. I think that was my favourite. Th- because it's a bit spicy, it feels like it's speeding up your metabolism. And also, kind of, you can spice some flavour to taste, so it's a bit more interesting than your average soup. So do you think, even though you're kind of having this day where you only have 500 calories do you think you still felt quite healthy by the end of it definitely I definitely didn't feel quite as full or as tired actually towards the sort of end of the first week I felt more awake which is surprising because I usually need about 15 cups of coffee before I'm even functional in the morning um yeah, I'd have to agree. Well, that's one of the things. I, I like having really, really milky coffee, so I yeah. just completely cut that out. And, and sugar. Yeah, and I was functioning normally. And also you just feel less sluggish because you're just not putting as much in your body. So it gets to the stage where you get over this initial sense of hunger and you just feel empty, but you don't feel any less energetic for it. It just makes you feel like you've mm. kind of you've got a little bit more to give throughout the day as well. You don't kind of have that post-lunch slump. Um and, and definitely coming into the second week, I felt like on the off days, so when we were allowed to eat whatever we wanted, I actually was inclined not to, not yeah. really. Where initially we were like, Byron Burger, here we come. <laughs> Towards the end, sort of middle of the second week, I was kind of less inclined mm. to do that and kind of stuck, stuck to salads or even sushi again yeah. and soups. And yeah, so it wasn't, I think it's, it's, it's definitely a lifestyle diet. Well, that's the, in, in the that book regard. as well, it re- recommends that you do it as a lifestyle, not just for a two-week period. Um, so, yeah. Because I've definitely adjusted the, my eating habits since doing the diet. I think I have as well. I'm definitely more aware. And I've kind of tried to cut down on the food that I'm eating in January. Yeah. And this has been really, really helpful in order to do that. So I think it's really good, even if you can't maintain it as a lifestyle. It's still a very, very good go-to book. Because if you want to just cut down for a couple of weeks, it's a really, really easy plan to follow. Yeah, and it does, you know, there are benefits to it. We lost, well, I lost about four pounds. I think I lost a little over four pounds. Yeah, and that's that's easy going and I don't feel like I missed out on anything really. I know the first couple of days were obviously quite tough, but yeah. other than that, it was quite easy. Oh. It's not like some of those diets that really challenge you and, and you know... Horrible side effects. But it's the only diet around that there's some sort of reward to it as well. You really can, on those days when you eat what you want, you really can eat what you want. And you'd have to eat quite a bit for it to have a negative impact on the kind of 500 calorie days. Yeah, exactly. Wow, that all sounds really positive. Thanks so much for coming in and talking to us about your diet. Um, The Alternate Day Diet by James B. Johnson is out now. Sounds really interesting, though I'm not sure I could have stuck to it over the Christmas period. It's definitely a January diet. 
Finally, we have a stirring extract from the audiobook edition of Quiet by Susan Cain. Montgomery, Alabama, December 1st, 1955. Early evening. A public bus pulls to a stop, and a sensibly dressed woman in her 40s gets on. She carries herself erectly, despite having spent the day bent over an ironing board in a dingy basement tailor shop at the Montgomery Fair department store. Her feet are swollen. Her shoulders ache. She sits in the first row of the colored section and watches quietly as the bus fills with riders until the driver orders her to give her seat to a white passenger. The woman utters a single word that ignites one of the most important civil rights protests of the 20th century, one word that helps America find its better self. The word is no. The driver threatens to have her arrested. You may do that, says Rosa Parks. A police officer arrives. He asks Parks why she won't move. Why do you all push us around? She answers simply. I don't know, he says, but the law is the law, and you're under arrest. On the afternoon of her trial and conviction for disorderly conduct, the Montgomery Improvement Association holds a rally for Parks at the Holt Street Baptist Church in the poorest section of town. 5,000 gather to support Parks's lonely act of courage. They squeeze inside the church until its pews can hold no more. The rest wait patiently outside, listening through loudspeakers. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. addresses the crowd. There comes a time that people get tired of being trampled over by the iron feet of oppression, he tells them. There comes a time when people get tired of being pushed out of the glittering sunlight of life's July and left standing amidst the piercing chill of an alpine November. He praises Parks's bravery and hugs her. She stands silently, her mere presence enough to galvanize the crowd. The association launches a citywide bus boycott that lasts 381 days. The people trudge miles to work. They carpool with strangers. They change the course of American history. I had always imagined Rosa Parks as a stately woman with a bold temperament someone who could easily stand up to a busload of glowering passengers. But when she died in 2005 at the age of 92, the flood of obituaries recalled her as soft-spoken, sweet, and small in stature. They said she was timid and shy, but had the courage of a lion. They were full of phrases like radical humility and quiet fortitude. What does it mean to be quiet and have fortitude, these descriptions asked implicitly. How could you be shy and courageous? Parks herself seemed aware of this paradox, calling her autobiography Quiet Strength, a title that challenges us to question our assumptions. Why shouldn't quiet be strong? And what else can quiet do that we don't give it credit for? Our lives are shaped as profoundly by personality as by gender or race. And the single most important aspect of personality, the north and south of temperament, as one scientist puts it, 
is where we fall on the introvert-extrovert spectrum. Our place on this continuum influences our choice of friends and mates and how we make conversation, resolve differences, and show love. It affects the careers we choose and whether or not we succeed at them. It governs how likely we are to exercise, commit adultery, function well without sleep, learn from our mistakes, place big bets in the stock market, delay gratification, be a good leader, and ask, what if? Answer key, exercise, extroverts, commit adultery, extroverts, function well without sleep, introverts, learn from our mistakes, introverts, place big bets, extroverts, delay gratification, introverts. Be a good leader, in some cases introverts, in other cases extroverts, depending on the type of leadership called for. Ask, what if? Introverts. It's reflected in our brain pathways, neurotransmitters, and remote corners of our nervous systems. Today, introversion and extroversion are two of the most exhaustively researched subjects in personality psychology, arousing the curiosity of hundreds of scientists. These researchers have made exciting discoveries, aided by the latest technology, but they're part of a long and storied tradition. Poets and philosophers have been thinking about introverts and extroverts since the dawn of recorded time. Both personality types appear in the Bible and in the writings of Greek and Roman physicians, and some evolutionary psychologists say that the history of these types reaches back even farther than that. The animal kingdom also boasts introverts and extroverts, as we'll see, from fruit flies to pumpkin seed fish to rhesus monkeys. As with other complementary pairings, masculinity and femininity, east and west, liberal and conservative, humanity would be unrecognizable and vastly diminished without both personality styles. Take the partnership of Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr. A formidable orator refusing to give up his seat on a segregated bus wouldn't have had the same effect as a modest woman who'd clearly prefer to keep silent, but for the exigencies of the situation. And Parks didn't have the stuff to thrill a crowd if she'd tried to stand up and announce that she had a dream. But with King's help, she didn't have to. Yet today, we make room for a remarkably narrow range of personality styles. We're told that to be great is to be bold. To be happy is to be sociable. We see ourselves as a nation of extroverts, which means that we've lost sight of who we really are. Depending on which study you consult, one-third to one-half of Americans are introverts. In other words, one out of every two or three people you know. Given that the United States is among the most extroverted of nations, the number must be at least as high in other parts of the world. If you're not an introvert yourself, you are surely raising, managing, married to, or coupled with one. And that's it from the Penguin Podcast. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, visit the website, thepenguinpodcast.co.uk. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email them to podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or find us on Twitter at Penguin Podcast. You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.